Good morning and welcome to The Crossings. We are glad you are here today and I would like to see Marcus. Where's Marcus at? Not here today? Okay. Ian? Is Ian here? Come on, Ian. What's up, Ian? Come on up here, man. I want to give this to you. Um, now, you made a decision to be baptized this last week. Is that right? Yes. All right. You guys give him another hand. You can go ahead and be seated. Um, Ian uh, studied with Kyle and Jordan. If you guys want to give a wave. Anytime somebody makes a decision to follow Jesus, we want to make a big deal out of that uh, because it's the biggest decision you're ever going to make in your life, right? Uh, the Bible says when we make a good decision and decide to give our lives to the Lord, the angels rejoice. There's a party in heaven, so there should be a party down here on earth. Also, we have a responsibility as a church, as older brothers and sisters, those of us here who have been walking with Jesus for a while, have a responsibility, a biblical and God-given, God-honoring responsibility to take care of the younger believers around us. We call that discipling, and that comes in the form of basically just helping people learn to grow and develop in life. That is something all of us are called to do uh, as disciples. We're called to uh, be involved in one another's lives, and we are called to help people grow and develop as, as disciples. If you read all those one another commands in the, in the New Testament, that's what all of that is about. A lot of this, practically speaking, day to day, in terms of how we act out our faith. Yeah, we've got certain things we believe. We, we believe God is good. We believe he's in heaven. We believe he's in charge. We also believe he has some expectations for how we live our lives. And a lot of how we act that out in life involves relationship with those we are tight with in the church and relationship with those in the world that we're reaching out to. There's this rhythm in life. Man, God has this life in store for you that's good. And, and, uh, and this is a big part of the Christmas story, guys. The, the, the Christmas story, what we celebrate every year is God in heaven making himself a human being and actually coming into his creation to show us a better way, to show us how to live, to show us what life is about. And we get to take part in this story. And if you guys read uh, the, the story uh, of the birth of Jesus in the Bible, have you guys ever noticed how much of the story of Christmas is a, is a travel story? There's this traveling theme that goes along. There's this journey that they're on. And guys, what does the Bible say about the journey of life and roads? Do you guys remember what the Bible says about roads and life? There's two roads. You guys remember what the two roads are? There's a wide road and there's a narrow road. Jesus says this, right? What's the wide road? That's the path away from God. He says it's wide and it's full of people because most people are not going to listen to me. Most people are going to think they have their own answers in life. They're, they're, they're not going to think there's an authority that they need to listen to. They're not going to think that there's uh, uh, anything outside of what they see. And they're going to be on this wide road. They're not going to live to honor me. They're just going to kind of do what they want. They may have their own moral compass that they come up with. It's going to look different for different people. There's not a universal standard. Wide road. But then he says, then there's the narrow road. Who's on the narrow road? People who listen to Jesus, right? And the narrow road is narrow because there's not a lot of people on it. 
There's not a lot of people who say there's a God in heaven who loves me and I'm going to love him with all my heart. There's not a lot of people who say Jesus Christ is the son of God and he died on the cross for my sins and I don't just need to believe that, I need to listen to what he says. There's not going to be a lot of people who say there's a lost group uh, out in the world that needs salvation and I need to go out and help them do something about it. I need to get right with God so I can help others get right with God. There's not going to be a lot of people that do that, Jesus says. Most people are going to be on this other road. But if you're wise, if you're wise, you're going to be on the narrow road. And there are reasons we should be on that narrow road. And and I want to give you uh, some reasons to hope today. A lot of this journey, guys, the story of Christmas is a story of hope. You guys know what hope means? In the Bible, because it means something different in our language. When I say I hope something, what I I mean when I say hope in English is there's a possibility of this thing might happen. Like, I hope I win a million dollars, right? Am I going to win a million dollars? Probably not, right? What are the chances that I'm going to win a million dollars? Very slim. But I hope, right? It's good to hope. Okay, that's not what the the word hope means in the Bible. In the Bible, when people say the word hope, it doesn't mean possibility, it means confident expectation. So it's less than there's a possibility this could happen. It's more of, I know this is going to happen, it's just going to be in the future, I hope. I hope Jesus comes back someday. Maybe he will, maybe he won't. That's not hope in the Bible, okay? I hope Jesus comes back someday means there is a confident expectation Jesus is coming back and I'm going to orient my life as if that's true because it is. That's hope, okay? And that's different than just possibility. Hope is what drives you forward. Hope is faith. Why do we keep keep trying when life throws us a curveball when things get hard? Because we know there's something better. And guys, that's the Christmas story. The Christmas story is not that maybe things are going to get better in the future or maybe there's this heaven. And, you know, like Pascal used to say, I'm going to live my life as a a Christian. And if there's not, oh, well, look, that's not hope, okay? I'm going to live my life as a Christian. Why? Because there's a God in heaven and he loves me and I get to go be with him for eternity and I get to bring my friends with me too. And he's going to teach us how to live right in this life and then I get to go be with him in the next life. That's hope. Hope that's going to happen. And there's reasons that Jesus is the road to hope. I want to give you a few this morning, okay? You've got some notes in your bulletin if you want to pull those out. It's going to have most of the scriptures we're going to look at on there and a place for you to write some things down. Why should we view Jesus as the source of hope for our lives? Number one, because of the purpose Jesus embodied. Because of the purpose that Jesus embodied. In Judaism, guys, names were often tied to identity and purpose. You guys might notice if you read the story of the Bible, sometimes people will come into contact with someone where their life direction is going to change. And they'll be given a new name that aligns with their new purpose in life, right? Names are significant. So whenever the angel comes, the angel from heaven comes and... and and shares this, says, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, 
because he will save his people from their sins. The word Jesus in the original language means the Lord saves. That's what his name means. And so that's tied to his identity. Now, guys, there is confusion out there sometimes when people wonder, why did Jesus come to earth? Jesus came to earth to save you. He came to earth to save you from your sins. And not only that, he came here to teach you how to live a good life in here, in the, on this earth, so that we can enjoy life in the next. His identity is wrapped up in, in salvation from sin. Okay, when you think about your life, when you think about your relationship with God, the barrier between you and God is your sin. Anytime we sin, guys, crazy enough, how many times do you have to sin to be cut off from God? Just once. Why? And that's hard for me to wrap my mind around. Why? Because he's that holy. We don't understand God's holiness. Guys, we don't understand. I don't think I understand sin and the destructive nature of it. If I did, would I rationalize some of the things that I rationalize sometimes or do some of the things that I do? Some? No. No, I wouldn't. But Jesus indicates the seriousness of it. This is what he died for. Guys, often pain in life, and I just want you to think about this. Think about the worst stuff that's ever happened to you in your life. The worst thing that has ever happened to you in your life. You can't just make a list. What's the worst? The worst pain? The worst? The worst? The worst. Okay? Now, I want you to think through that list. How many of those pains were the result of either you or someone else not being who God wanted them to be? And I think for most of us, our greatest pain, we, could, we can just see the link to sin. Now, I understand sometimes, guys, some of, some of your pain may be uh, health-related. It may be related to a disease or something else. Um, guys, even that stuff is related to sin. Because death and disease wouldn't be in the world if it weren't for what happened in the garden. Everything. Guys, your, your, your pain in life is related to the sin. Jesus comes to save you from all that garbage. Jesus comes to make everything right. Jesus is creating a world where that stuff doesn't exist anymore. And that's where we get to enjoy this. Jesus' purpose was to be Savior. But guys, part of the way Jesus saves us, and I just want you to think, I, I share that illustration, most of your pain is either because of your choices or someone else's choices. If that's true, what do we need to do in life? We need to learn to make better choices. And that's why Jesus is not just our Savior, he's also our King. And he's presented that way. He is the fulfillment of prophecies that go back thousands of years that someday a King is going to come, not just a Savior, but a King who's going to build a new kingdom and he's going to teach us how to live in a way that honors, uh, honors God. Now they didn't know at the time he was going to be God. But that's who it was. God came in and God is the king. Jesus' purpose was to be the savior and also king. Uh, look at how this is tied to David, guys. In Luke 2, 10 and 11, something happened today in the town of David. That's Bethlehem. That's where David was from. Someone special was born. He's the one who will save you all. He's the Messiah. He is the Lord. Now, if you come to the crossings, uh, you know we talk a lot about how Jesus is the fulfillment of all these, what we call messianic prophecies. They're prophecies 
from the Old Testament that are tied to the Messiah, the king that's to come. There's over 400 of them. We can look and verify them. Here's what this king's going to be like. Here's who Jesus is. Here's exactly how he fulfilled this. It's pretty cool. It's one of those um, faith builders. But Jesus is not just your savior. He's your king. And this is where we get twisted, especially in the United States. When you start studying Christianity and you start looking at cultural expressions of it and church expressions and different issues that churches are facing all over the world, one of our biggest issues in the United States is consumerism. Now, I've talked with some, uh, some smart people who have studied this issue all over the place. One of the uh, seminaries that I got to go to was... Uh, Fuller Theological Seminary in, in uh, San Francisco area. And uh, we had the editor for the big newspaper that came in there, and he sat with a group of about 50 of us who were all <coughs> students in the seminary, and we got to ask him questions. And this is a guy who'd been a religious editor for one of the largest newspapers in the United States for 30 or 40 years. He had a lot of experience and wealth. And we said, hey, man, what is the number one in the United States problem that you see facing the church? And he didn't even have to blink. He said consumerism. Because we're conditioned to be consumers in our country. You know, when we go to Starbucks, we expect them, we expect them to be on it, right? I ain't trying to wait. Why? Because I'm the customer. And you're supposed to serve me. When I go to Walmart, you know what I hate when I go to Walmart? Self-checkout. What's wrong? What do you mean I got I to gotta self-checkout? Where's, where's, the, where's the cashier? Like, why? Because you serve me. You hear from me, right? I want to talk to the manager. Any of you in here? Any Karens in here? Any Karens? Right? Um, why? Because I'm, I'm the customer. Guys, did you know people walk up in churches like that all the time? And I'll tell you, I love working with lost people. But some of the hardest folks to deal with are the religious ones that have been in church cultures for a long time because we walk into churches with this mindset that I'm the customer. Serve me. Okay? You can start there. That's great. Everybody starts there. I'm not trying to dog you if you're here today and this is what you're thinking, okay? Everybody got to start somewhere. God will meet you wherever you are. But there has to come a time when that mindset changes as you get to know who Jesus is. Because as you get to know who Jesus is, what you will learn is that Jesus doesn't just want to be your Savior. Jesus is also your Lord. And there comes a time where there has to be a shift in your thinking where you stop coming and saying, hey, serve me, serve me, serve me, to where, to where the shift comes and you're saying, hey, I'm going to serve the king. Hey, the king says this, this is the way I need to live. I'm going to serve the king. Hey, the king is about reaching out and serving lost people. I'm going to serve the king. I'm not just going to be about me. But if you keep coming in church and saying, hey, serve me, serve me, serve me, serve me, and you shift and back. That's not a Christian. That's not a Christian. There's got to be a shift in thinking. What does it mean to be saved from my sin? It means 
that I get to enter into this covenant relationship with God where I don't just get forgiveness, guys. I get to learn how to be the person that God created me to be. And what I learn as I become that person that God created me to be is that it's not just about me. God's not just concerned for me. God is also concerned for the people around me that I could influence and persuade and love. And God wants to use me as a vessel of light and love in the world where I'm not just thinking about me. I'm thinking about the people that God can use me to bless. That's what it looks like as you grow. But if you stay in that consumer mindset where you're walking in and just thinking about you, that is, uh, you can get stuck there. And you got to make the shift. You got to make the shift. What does Jesus call us to do as it relates to his kingship? Matthew 6, guys. And we're going to read this from the Amplified Bible because I like how clear it puts it here. It says, seek first or be concerned above all else with God's kingdom and what God wants. That's his righteousness. Then all your other needs will be met or these things will be given to you. This is Matthew 6.33. Say, how do I relate to God as king? I got the Savior down. Okay, got that down. How do I relate to him as king? What does it look like practically day to day? What Jesus says, this is Jesus talking. He says, put God first. What's the greatest command in the whole Bible? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first and greatest command. This is the same. Seek God first. Okay, whenever, whenever somebody comes in here and they say, hey, I want a relationship with God, what's the first thing we, we talk to them about? Seeking God in our Bible studies. This is where it starts. You seek God. So seek first, be concerned with all else. When he says God's kingdom, what does that mean? Be concerned, first of all, with God's kingdom. Do I think about God's kingdom as I go through life? When I walk into Walmart... Am I just walking into Walmart or am I thinking, man, there are people in this Walmart that don't have a relationship with Jesus. How can I be a kingdom person in this situation in life, right? That's going to affect how I act. That's going to affect how I treat people around me. That's going to affect how I'm representing Christ, guys, when I'm out in the community. It's going to affect my conversations with people. It's going to affect everything if I'm putting his kingdom First, if I'm not putting his kingdom first, Jesus probably just isn't going to be on my mind. I'm probably not going to pray about my coworkers. I'm not going to pray about my family. I'm not going to be thinking about lost people. I'm probably just going to show up to church on Sundays. But it's not going to be part of my mindset or life day to day. Guys, some of you in here are brand new believers. You, you, are, you are just learning about this stuff. You have to make a conscious effort to make this part of your mindset. I get up in the mornings and I pray. I start my day with prayer, usually end my day with prayer. How do you start your day? Some people put their shoes under their bed just so they have to get down on their knees in the morning when they get up to remind them, hey, I should be praying. How do you start your day? You got to be intentional to have a mindset change. You got to put some effort into it and make some intentionality. Guys, when God says, put me first, put him first in your mind. It starts up here in your mind and your heart, right? In your mind and your heart. When I put God's kingdom first, who's king? Who's king? Jesus is king, right? If, if Jesus is king, 
Who do I need to listen to? Okay, I'm going to do what he says, right? I'm going to obey if Jesus is king. Now, if I just like Jesus and want him to save my sins, but I don't really want him to be my king, do I need to listen to him? Well, no. I just, I just kind of want a savior. But guys, if, it doesn't work like that. He's savior and king, or he's not savior. You have to be a willing to put him first and, and listen and obey, guys. What he says is seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. What he says is right. Then all your other needs will be met. Then. This is an if-then, guys. This is a possibility. Are you willing to put God first and to be about what Jesus says to be about? If the answer is yes, what this passage, what this promise from God is, is that God is going to take care of your needs. If you will put me first and make my kingdom first, I'm going to take care of your needs. This is an if-then. Very, very important, right? Secondly, Jesus is our ultimate source of hope. Secondly, because of the people that Jesus included. So not only because of the purpose he embodied, where he came and and is worried about a lost world and he's worried about uh, our relation to him, but also because of the people he included. First, you know, just think about those he chose to include in his lineage. Now, what we mean by that is his family. If you read uh, Matthew or Luke, there's a, a genealogy where the writers actually trace Jesus's family back uh, to David and, and to Abraham. And if you read the names of the people that were in his line, there are some messed up stories in there. For instance, uh, he's related to a lady named Tamar. Anybody in here read about Tamar in the book of Genesis? She uh, didn't have children by the time in life she thought she should have children. So she decided to go get her dad drunk and then have sex with him after disguising herself as a prostitute. Does that sound like a wholesome story? Sounds like an episode of Jerry Springer, right? Uh, Rahab. Who was Rahab? Rahab was a prostitute. She uh, was a Gentile prostitute, not even a Jewish prostitute. She lived in Jericho. Uh, She hid some of the spies from Israel when they came in to take over the city. And she was considered righteous because she helped them uh, take over that place uh, and God wanted them to have it. But she was a prostitute, okay? She made her living sleeping with men. What about Ruth? You ever read the book of Ruth? Not all of Ruth is a wholesome story. There's some sexual immorality where she's sleeping around, like to kind of get this in this guy's graces. Not all wholesome, right? And then you've got uh, Bathsheba. You guys remember the story of Bathsheba? Okay. She uh, had an affair with David. Don't know if that was all her choice, okay? It could have just been, you, you didn't say no to the king. So she could have been a victim. But that whole incident with David, where he has an affair with her, and then uh, if you want to read about this, it's in uh, uh, First Peter or uh, First Samuel, rather, uh, in the Old Testament. He has an affair with this woman, and then uh, she gets pregnant, and to cover up the pregnancy, he kills her husband. Has her, has him killed? He doesn't do it himself, but he has him killed, and it's a guy that was loyal to him, like one of his soldiers. 
It's a messed up story. You guys know, um, most of the time they don't include women in genealogies. Did you know that? So this was like intentionally done. They included all these women in this genealogy, not only these women, but also these women that had jacked up stories. Why do you think God chose to do that? You guys understand God in heaven knew which family he was going to be born into. And he knew the situation and what was going to happen. Like he's God. It's not that he can see the future, guys. Omnipresence, he's already there. Time is not a thing. Like, doesn't make sense. Why? Because we're finite, right? He doesn't just remember the past. He's in the past. And he's in the future. And he's here. Okay. Did, I, did that boil us yet? Uh, he knows these stories. He knows this stuff. And then he chooses to inspire the writers to actually write it in the Bible. Why? Any of you in here come from jacked up families? Have you ever felt like you don't have hope because you are unlike your neighbor because you come from the family you come from? You ever felt like that? You ever felt like you are especially messed up because of the family that you come from? Okay. One of the reasons uh, we encourage people to get up here and share about this stuff sometimes, like Jake is really good about getting up and just talking about his, his trouble that he's had. Why? Because it gives hope to people. Why do I get up here and share about my sexual abuse and sexual trauma and drug, ab drug abuse? Because I don't do that stuff anymore, and I want to give hope to people. Guys, God put these stories in here to give you hope if you come from a jacked-up background and jacked-up family. Jesus Christ's family line looks like a Jerry Springer episode. That should give you hope. Secondly, what else should give us hope? Those who he chose to announce his birth. Those who he chose to announce his birth. He chose the lowly to announce his birth. If you read the story, he calls shepherds. Guys, shepherds were gross back then. People did not like shepherds because they smelled like their sheep. But frequently, and sheep stink worse than other animals. If you've never been around, they, they stink bad. Like the only thing worse than a sheep house is a chicken house in Arkansas when it's 105 degrees. That will change your life. Um, and not in a good way. They stink, they're gross, but he chooses these shepherds to come and announce the king, right? Why? He did that on purpose. He didn't choose the palace heralds that were dressed nice. He didn't choose the, he chose the lowly. Why? To give us hope. Then there's those he chose to be in his inner circle, you guys, uh, in the first century, if you were a rabbi, like uh, one of these elite guys, you only chose the best students. You would have all these kids coming up, like trying to be your student, being your disciple, because if you got in with the rabbi and you got trained to be an elite rabbi, it was a good living, it was respect, you were respected in the community, it was a really coveted position. It was, it was like you, you made it if you were able to do that. But they chose very few people. Like if you were uh, the best of the best, 
you had memorized the entire Old Testament word for word. Okay? Anybody in here done that yet? Anybody in here memorized the book of the Bible? Nobody? Anybody in here memorized the chapter in the Bible? You guys need to get on it. I'm not, I'm not kidding. You, guys, you can do more with your brain than you think. And memorizing scripture is super duper helpful. Super duper helpful. And you can do more than you think. But that, you didn't even get looked at twice. And so out of the kids who'd memorized the whole Old Testament word for word, who could recite it word for word in context, then we'll decide who's going to... Okay, so you got, you're, you're whittling the pool down. Guys, it was only the very, very, very best that got to follow the rabbi. And so for Jesus to come along and call the men to call, like follow him that he did, who did he call to follow him? Fishermen. Blue-collar dudes. Like, he called the people that, that, that nobody else would, would pay attention to. Not only that, tax collectors. Okay, they didn't even get a look by the other rabbis. They didn't get a look. But he calls this, crap, this, this rabble, this riffraff, to follow him. That's what the, that's what the world would have said. It's the riffraff right? Why did he do that? Have any of you in here felt like God can't use me? God can't do that through me. I can't help somebody else that way. I'm not enough. You ever thought that? That's why Jesus called those men. Because every single one of those men thought they weren't enough. And guess what? You don't have to be when God is in your life. You don't have to be enough because God is. Not only that, he's more than enough. More than enough, guys. Your cup overflows. You're not the one that makes it overflow. It's him. You got to lean into him. That's your only responsibility. That is our only responsibility. When I say this is too hard, this is this is too much, God is expecting your only responsibility is to lean into him. He calls you into his inner circle. The only qualification to being in Jesus's inner circle is your willingness to listen to him. It's not your talent it's not your capacity, it's not your intellect, it's not your ability, it is your obedience, and that is it. And you get to choose whether you want to obey or not. I wish I could choose my talents, don't you? Man, I would be a major league baseball player throwing 150 mile an hour fastballs, knocking them out of the park, and then I'd like go over to SpaceX and go to space because I get to choose my abilities and I have all the ability to do all that stuff and that all sounds like fun to me. Wouldn't that be cool? But life don't work like that. You don't get to choose how gifted you are or how talented you are. You do get to choose whether you obey God or not. And what God expects of one person he may not expect completely the same thing of another person because of talents, but I guarantee you he expects obedience from both. 
That obedience may look different depending on what God has called you to do in life, but He expects your obedience. That is a requirement, guys. And He makes a way for everybody. I've got a video clip I want to share real quick. I'm sorry, she doesn't speak English. She's Dutch. She just came over. She's been living in an orphan's home in Rotterdam ever since. Well, we've adopted her. I told her you wouldn't be able to speak to her. But when she saw you in the parade yesterday, she said you were Santa Claus, as she calls you. And you could talk to her. Well, I didn't know what to do. Hello. Ik ben blij dat je gekomen bent. Oh, Ben Santa Claus. I guess I can. Ik wist het wel. Ik was zeker dat u het zou begrijpen. Natuurlijk. Zeg maar wat je zou willen hebben, Van Sinterklaas. Niks. Ik heb van alles. Ik wil alleen maar bij deze lieve dame zijn. <laughs> wil je wat meer mee zingen? Sinterklaas kapoentje, geef het in mijn schoentje, geef het in mijn laarsje. Dank u Sinterklaasje. Sinterklaas kapoentje, geef wat in mijn schoentje, geef wat in mijn laarsje. Dank. Now I don't know uh, if the people making that movie. Can you turn the lights back up? I don't know if the people taking that movie, making that movie, knew that they were illustrating what Jesus is like in that. But what you see is this little girl who doesn't speak the language, who's expecting to be an outcast, comes into here, and what does Santa Claus do? He speaks her language. And it's not in the clip, but that other little girl that was watching from the corner, you know what's up with her? She's deaf. And so she was afraid to get close to Santa because she's deaf. She's disabled. She's got a problem. And uh, she was afraid, but she saw how Santa Claus interacted with the other little girl and saw her face light up. And guess what the deaf girl did after this? The deaf girl is going to approach Santa Claus. And guess what Santa Claus is going to do? He's going to sign. You know, this past week... Um, you just never know, like, with people, they can surprise you. This past week, um, we had our men's group down here on Thursday, and I hung out and talked with Jayton a little bit afterwards, and then um, as I was leaving, Jayton, I think you went out the front, and I drove around the back of the building here, and there was a fellow behind the building uh, Thursday night. And uh, it was pretty cold. It was a homeless guy. And so I stopped and, and had a chat with him. And um, uh, after he threatened me a little bit, if I got too close to him, <laughs> which was kind of funny, uh, I said, okay, I'm not going to hurt you. Uh, so I was like, are you hungry? Are you cold? And I went and got him some stuff. Um, and I took it back to him. And I got out and gave it to him. And 
You know, you don't expect a homeless guy to get up and start quoting Psalm 27 passionately. But that's what he did. And, you know, I could tell, like, he's got some mental issues. There were some other things I won't get into um, that he was telling me about. But he starts quoting Scripture passionately. Just like, and I just started weeping. Right over here. Because you don't expect that. But it just reminded me that every single person on this planet has worth and every single person on this planet is loved by God and every single person on this planet is designed to be included. But so many people, they never think they're going to be included and they just accept being on the outside. And God doesn't want them out there. He doesn't want to leave them out there. And, you know, the truth is, guys, we cannot make anybody be included. There are people that we invite here, like, hey, man, come jump into a relationship, and they, and they exclude themselves. Okay? We cannot make the decision for people. Whether you, whether you jump in or not is up to you. Like, nobody can make that decision for you. But we can open our doors as best we can, guys, and we can invite people in and we can, we can meet them where they are and love them and serve them and, and help them as best we can. We've got to remember, guys, that Jesus' call is for everyone. There's not anybody that he says, don't come to me. The only, the only requirement to come to Jesus is humility before Jesus and humility before the king. That's it. Matthew 28, he says, Go to all peoples everywhere and make them my disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All people everywhere. All people everywhere. Who does that leave out? We got to try, guys. I wish we could make the decision for other people. We don't get to. Like, it's their decision whether they want to listen or not. But we got to try and reach them. And we need to try to do it skillfully, where we can build relationships and develop trust with people and get them to trust us so that they can trust God. We need to try to do that. That takes... Because this is why we, we structure stuff the way we do here at the church. With small groups and stuff, we want to teach you guys how to do this, how to impact people's lives skillfully. I guarantee you, you can learn to do that however God has designed you to do it. It may look different for you than it does for me, but man, there are gifts that you have. There are people you can touch and persuade that I can't because God has made you different than me. And what we've just got to be is committed, guys, because there's a hurting, lost world out there. And God wants to use us to make a better place. That's part of the hope of Christmas, man. That's part of, when he says go out and make disciples, that's, we are literally connecting people to the source of life. What greater gift could you give somebody? 
We're not twisting people's arms like, hey, could you do us a favor and, and, and maybe come to church? You're giving them the best thing they could ever have with the relationship with God. What a gift. We get to be light and life because we're on the side of light and life when we're with Jesus. Thirdly, Jesus is our ultimate source of hope because of the price that Jesus paid. Because of the price that Jesus paid. The writer of Hebrews reminds uh, some Jewish converts to Christianity what the sacrifice of Jesus was all about. He says, For it's not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The plain fact is that a bull and a goat, or bull and goat blood can't get rid of sin. <coughs> this is what is meant by this prophecy put in the mouth of Christ. You don't want sacrifices and offerings year after year. You've prepared a body for me to sacrifice. It's not fragrance and smoke from the altar that wet your appetite. So I said, I'm here to do it your way, O oh God, the way it's described in your book. When he said, you don't want sacrifices and offerings, he was referring to practices according to the old plan. When he added, I'm here to do it your way, he set aside the first order in order to enact the new plan, God's way, by which we are made fit for God by the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus. Now, that was a chunk, okay? Hebrews is the hardest book in the New Testament to understand, uh, besides Revelation, but we won't go there. Hebrews is the hardest because it is tied so, uh, like you have to understand Judaism to understand the book of Hebrews and what all the references that are being made. What he is making a case here, uh, there is a group, you know, it looks like a, a Jewish believers who were still confused about how their old religion jived with this new way of following Jesus. And there was confusion among some because, you know, if you grow up your whole life being taught that I have to go to the temple once a year and go through this sacrifice to have my sins forgiven, and if I don't, my sins aren't forgiven, uh, and then somebody comes along and says, no, Jesus' sacrifice is good. You don't have to do that anymore. Well, are you sure? You know, like, because I was taught by grandma, I have to do this or I'm going to hell, and this is kind of difficult for me. So there were all kinds of conversations like that that had to be, had to take place in the first century. This letter to Hebrews is a long letter that kind of helps with a lot of that stuff. And what he's saying here is those old sacrifices, the blood of bulls and rams, that sacrifice wasn't good enough to wipe out your sin in an ultimate sense. All of that stuff, all of the Old Testament practices, which is so a faith builder, guys, all of those old elements are shadows and foreshadowings of what was ultimately going to be fulfilled in Jesus. If you're interested in studying that more, look up Jews for Jesus on the internet. They have amazing like devotionals and stuff. We may even have them come here someday and, and do some teaching for us. Uh, they do a Passover where, where everybody comes in and enjoys a Passover and you get to see all the ways it's tied to Jesus. But the point that he's making here is that Jesus' sacrifice is good enough for all. It is good enough for one time. He, he does it one time and it's good forever. And that was what he did for us on the cross. We're made fit once for all through the sacrifice of Jesus. Guys, that's why we don't have to go and, and do the Old Testament stuff anymore. That's obsolete. We don't have to do it anymore. It served its purpose. It's not bad, but it served its purpose. Kind of like high school, right? You went, a lot of us in here graduated high school. Wasn't bad that we went to high school. Like there were rules and stuff that we had to follow in high school, for high school. 
Like I had to be at first period at a certain time, and I had to be at second period at a certain time. And there were certain other little rules that I had to follow. But then I graduated. After I graduated, I didn't have to follow those rules anymore, but there were still stuff that I, I needed to do, right? Um, it's different. Same way. Back in the Old Testament times, there were certain rules and stuff that I had to follow. But then when Jesus came, we graduated. There's a different way now. It's through Jesus. John the Baptist, the one whose job it was to tell everybody what Jesus was about, said it this way. He said, look, this man is more than he seems. He's the lamb sent from God, the sacrifice to erase the sins of the world. All those prior little lambs that were sacrificed were all a foreshadowing of the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus was going to make. And Jesus' purpose is stated in Mark 10, 45, where he says, The Son of Man did not come to be served. He came to serve others. He came to give his life as the price for setting people free. For. You guys know that phrase, Jesus died for my sins. That is easy to say, man. But when you think about it, when you think about it, we take communion here. The reason we take communion, and, and Jesus says to take communion, is because uh, it is to remember his sacrifice and his suffering. There's a reason for that. Uh, whenever I think about the sacrifice of Jesus, guys, I think about the night he was betrayed. When he's around the table, if you can just picture, he's around a table with his friends, and then Judas gets up and, and goes and gets the authorities to come and, and nab Jesus later that night. And they, they take him under the cover of darkness, illegally, to an undisclosed location where all the leaders have gathered and they begin accusing him and there's false witnesses that come and slander him and they say he's making all these threats against uh, our religion and, and the government and everything else and they beat him and they spit on him and they keep him there all night. And then the next day after they've spent the night beating him and, and, and mocking him and, and making fun of him. They, they grab him and they take him before Pilate, who was the Roman governor. They didn't have the power to kill him. They were going to have to go to the Romans to do that. But they were going to have to convince the Romans to do that. So they bring Jesus already beaten and bloodied and bruised in front of Pilate. And then they start bringing false witnesses to come in and, and share. Hey, this guy said he's going to overthrow Rome. Hey, this guy said he's going to start a riot. Hey, this guy said this. This guy said that. They're false witnesses making stuff up. They're going to say whatever they can just to get Pilate to kill him. Now, Pilate is smart, and he sees what they're trying to do. He knows they're just trying to get this guy killed. He doesn't have the heart just to kill this guy just because they want. So he gives them a few options. But guys, what do the Jewish leaders do? They turn that crowd. They turn that crowd in Jerusalem against Pilate unless Pilate is willing willing to go through and kill Jesus. So they threatened a riot. And Pilate even, even gave them an option between having a murderer released or Jesus released. They chose the murderer. 
And guys, ultimately the crowd is shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. So Pilate orders that Jesus be flogged. You guys know a flogging was horrible. Just the flogging. They had a a pole that was about this high. And they would tie your hands up here like this. And then they would stretch your feet behind you where you were at an angle. They would strip you completely naked. Uh, Which, by the way, all the pictures that you've seen of crucifixions, none of those had clothes or loincloths. All crucifixions were stark naked. It was part of the humiliation. Jesus was crucified naked. Um, not with a loincloth. And uh, just the floggings, guys, they they would strip you down, so you're already naked in front of the ground. Then they'd take a handle that had nine leather straps on it, and on the end of those leather straps, there would be broken glass or metal hooks or really heavy steel or iron balls. And, uh, and a professional Roman soldier whose job it was to make this horrible would take that handle and they would smack you 39 times. And after that, you were never the same. Because uh, those hooks would stick in him, and the glass would stick in him, and the metal balls would hit the the muscle and the sinew and just like a meat hammer hitting a stake. And guys, there are instances, a lot of instances, where people died from the floggings because they would pierce an organ or the blood loss. And uh, man, there's, there's accounts where they hooked ribs and just pulled them out of people. I'm serious, it was gruesome. It was horrible. And so he's flogged, so he ain't ever going to be the same. By the way, Paul was flogged three times. Side note. But they flogged Jesus, and then they take the flogged Jesus. He's already been up all night. He's already been beaten. Now he's bloody. Now he's, it'd be hard to recognize him because there's strips of flesh hanging off him. You guys, we just read over this line like it ain't nothing in the Bible. He is not the same after the flogging. And then they take him into the barracks where now his back is covered in blood and they take a robe, a heavy royal robe, and they just throw it over him. And you can just imagine that matting to his back as the blood soaks in. And then they grab a crown of thorns that one of the mockers had made. And guys, these thorns in Jerusalem are like this long. If any of you guys uh, went over to Chris Kelly's old house, he used to have one of them thorn trees in his backyard that will flatten a tire on a lawnmower if you drive over it. Those are what the thorns are like over in Israel that they would have used for this. And so they're big old, like the thorns are like nails. It's not like a little rose bush. It's a big old nasty thing. And they put it on top of his head, then they got a stick and they hit it. And so it went down into his scalp. And they spit on him and they mocked him. And like one of them would come up behind him and whack him from behind and say, hey, prophet, who hit you? Who hit you if you're filled with the knowledge of God? Tell us who hit you. So by the time he gets to where they're going to take him up to crucify him, he can't even walk. They put the crossbar on him and tell him to carry it. He can't even carry it. He's already passing in and out of consciousness. He's already suffering from blood loss and dehydration. 
right? They get Simon to carry the cross for him. They take him up to the top of that hill. He's passing in and out of consciousness. They lay him on that cross. And they take some nails. Guys, when you think about the nails that they used on Jesus, have you ever seen a, 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 um, a spike for the railroad? That was like what the nails were. It was like a railroad spike. One little nail, it was a big old iron spike. And they would have situated it between these bones right here. There's a nerve right here. If you hit this, one of the worst pains you can experience is if you pierce this nerve right here. Mess with this nerve right here. Guys, the, the pain on the cross was so bad they had to invent a word for it. The word excruciating literally means from the cross because the pain was so bad on the cross that we did not have a word for it. They had to make one up, a new one. And so they lay him on that crossbar. They nail that spike, which is soon. Have you ever hit your elbow and you get that? Do that. It would have been that all the way through his whole arm. It would have been like the elbow jab where that, that hurt, but it doesn't go away. It's just constant on both sides. They nail him to the cross. They dig a hole. They pick his body up and drop that cross in that hole, wrecking him in pain. And the way they got his feet on there, I didn't mention, but they, uh, they would have made him slouch a bit like this to where there would have been some bend in the legs for a reason, okay? And they put a nail through his feet, too. So he's nailed. And the reason they would make him slouch is because that's how crucifixion actually would kill you, is as you're slouching on that cross and you're feeling the pain in your arms, man, you can't move them, it's hurting so bad. What happens is these muscles go into a spasm across your sternum, and it gets tighter and tighter and tighter to the point that it starts asphyxiating you. That's what you're doing. Can't get a breath. And so the only way to get a breath is to very painfully push up. Right back down. And they would leave you there until you didn't have enough gas in the tank to push up on the nails. And that's how you'd die, from asphyxiation. They would crucify you at eye level. You know, a lot of times you get these pictures of crosses way up in there. No, it was eye level. The reason they would crucify you at eye level is because they wanted people to be able to come up and look at you. And the worst kinds of people would, would mock people on the cross and throw rocks at people on the cross and curse people on the cross. And it was done in a place like Walmart. Okay, the Romans did all this stuff in public because this was part of how they kept the population in line. They did not crucify Roman citizens. This was only for non-citizens. Unless you were guilty of treason. Then you could have the possibility. And they didn't even crucify women. Because they considered it 
too horrible to look at a woman with that kind of agony on her face. So if they did crucify a woman, they would usually turn her around because nobody wanted to look at her face. If you lived too long and they wanted you to die, they'd get a hammer and they'd break your legs because then you couldn't push up anymore and you'd just asphyxiate, right? Horrible. Horrible. The bottom of the cross, guys, is a lot of times like the foot of the cross. We sing songs about it. People write poems about it. The beauty of the foot of the cross. Guys, the foot of the cross was blood and pee and sweat and poop. Because you lost control of your bodily functions while you were on the cross. So if you can imagine the greatest pain, the greatest pain you can experience. If you can imagine the greatest humiliation you can experience. Not only are you stark naked in front of everybody, you're stark naked and you've lost control of your bodily functions. And not only that, you got the mental anguish where with Jesus' case, who is at the cross watching him be humiliated and suffer? His mother. And who else was at the cross? His accusers who were cursing him in front of his mom. Can you imagine sitting and watching your kid get tortured to death while people are cheering? Can you imagine being the kid watching your mom watch that? Horrible. You know, a lot of times, whenever criminals would, uh, would be getting cursed, they would be cursing back at the crowd, or they would try to pee on the crowd or spit on the crowd, because what else are you going to do on a cross, right? And so the scene was often ugly, because these are criminals, right, a lot of times. What kind of stuff came out of Jesus' mouth? While his accusers were accusing him. Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Is that where I would have been saying? Mm, no. Good thing it was Jesus up there. I'd have nuked you. He could have. That's the crazy thing is he had all the power of God. He had all the power of God. He could have just gotten down off the cross, guys. He could have called. We sing that song, the old hymn, 10,000 Angels. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. What a happy song. He didn't. He didn't call them. But he could have. Why? What kept him on that cross? What kept him on that cross? It, it wasn't the nails. It was his love. It, it, was, it was his love. It was his care for you. That's what kept him on that cross. That word for, it's a little word. Three letters. F-O-R. He died for your sins. In communion, we remember the suffering. Why? You ever doubt God's love for you? You ever struggle? Maybe, maybe, maybe God doesn't really love me. 
That's, that's why he did it this way. Good grief, he was trying to convince you that he loves you. Does anybody here struggle with that? that? That is the point of the cross, guys. The whole point of the cross is God went over the top to show you, I love 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 you. There's no exclusion. You are special to God in a good way, not in a bad way. He loves you. That's what communion's all about. And so he wants us to take this every week because he wants us to remember my body was broken for you and my blood was spilled for you. And I, I want you guys to take this in. I want you to, to let this affect you because that's the point of it. It's this is how much God loves me because of the price Jesus paid. Let me pray for us and then we're going to close out. God, thank you for the sacrifice that you made for us in Jesus. I pray it affect us the way that it needs to. Help us to lean into your love, Lord, and in your name we pray. Amen. Lastly, Jesus is our ultimate source of hope. Number four, because of the power that Jesus demonstrated. I want you to see the word that it uses to describe us. See if you can find yourself in this, okay? You see, at just the right, right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone po might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How does that describe us? Powerless, ungodly sinners. Have you ever felt like you have to be good enough for Jesus to love you? Well, no, you just have to be a powerless, ungodly sinner and Jesus will love you. That is pretty broad, right? I can fit into that category just fine. That's who Jesus came to save. He has the power, though. We don't have the power. He has the power. He gives us power to overcome sin. In Ephesians 1.19, he says, I want you to know, Paul says, about the great and mighty power that God has demonstrated uh, that God has for us followers it's the same wonderful power he used when he raised Christ from the dead and let him sit at his right side in heaven he says this power the same resurrection power that brought Jesus back from the dead is now available to you through your relationship with God see you don't have to be powerful God is I don't have to have it all together. God does. What do I have to be? I got to be submissive. Like, that's it. I just need to listen to God. Guys, what is your baptism? It's submission. Like, you're making a commitment to submit your life to God. It's a surrender. That's all that it is. It's a surrender. You're saying, I'm going to let God be in charge now. I'm going to live life for him. That's what it is. And God says there's power in that. When we make that decision, it says in Acts 2, 36 through 40, this is uh, right after Jesus had ascended to heaven, 
He told his disciples, go to Jerusalem, I want you to wait, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. If you go read Acts 2, there's some crazy stuff that happens in fulfillment of prophecy. It's one of the most important passages in the Bible in terms of the narrative of Scripture. Um, What happens is God sends the Holy Spirit on to the believers in Jerusalem in the form of thunder and fire. And so he makes a scene, and all these thousands of people come together, and, and, and he inspires Peter to get up and share the gospel with this crowd. Guys, this is the same crowd that was yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Same group, 40 days later. How would you feel if you were in that crowd, and you were one of the ones mocking Jesus on the cross, only to learn that he actually was God? How would you feel if you were in that crowd? No feelings at all. Awesome. Guys, some of you need to wake up. How would you feel if you were in that crowd? Yeah. Thank you. Uh, It it would be horrible. It would be absolutely horrible. But he gets up and and look at this. Therefore, he's speaking to this crowd. Here's the punchline. He tells them the story. Jesus was God's man. You know he was God's man because of the miracles he did, but you killed him by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him from the dead. Therefore, verse 36, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Again, guys, the Jews were waiting for 2,000 years for the Messiah to come. Then they found out not only did the Messiah come and they missed it, they killed him. Bad day. They would have thought the next words out of Peter's mouth would, would have been, and now you're dead, right? They would have known that God had the power to just nuke them if he wanted to. But then it says, when the people heard this in verse 37, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Because that is power right there. That is power for you right there. And he says, this isn't just for them. He says, this promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Guys, when we surrender to God, sometimes we don't want to surrender because we're afraid of messing up. How many of you guys struggled with committing your lives to Jesus who have done so because you were afraid of messing up later? I did, right? Like, I was like, there's, 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 there's stuff I kind of want to hang on to, and I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to let it go. You know, that's really what I was kind of struggling with, because I don't think I can. What God wants you to know. What God wants you to know, guys, is you have to be committed to leaning into him because he doesn't expect you to have the power. He doesn't expect you to supply the power. He does expect you to lean into his power. And guys, he has more than enough. And when we're empowered and indwelled with the Holy Spirit, guys, that is God living within us, helping us live life. And that's a faith thing. Like, am I going to lean into what God says I should lean into? What God calls me to do is surrender to him, and then he's going to supply what I need to be able to surrender to him. I've got to be committed to surrendering to him. You guys get that? All God puts on me is, am I going to surrender or not? 
He's going he's gonna to supply everything I need as long as I'm surrendering to him. And so the important thing for me to remember is that's my job. I need to get up in the morning and say, hey, how can I love God today? And when I mess up, what do I need to do? You get up, dust yourself off, and try again. Don't give up. Keep going. But understand, this is part of how God empowers us is through our surrender. It says in Colossians, for your baptism, uh, in your baptism, your old evil nature died with him and was buried with him. And then you came up out of death with him into a new life because you trusted the word of the mighty God who raised Christ from the dead. Again, mighty God, powerful God. You trust in the power of the name of Jesus, not in your own power. And that's, guys, that's, what, that, that's, that's our faith, man. We are loyal to him. We lean into him. We rely on him, understanding that he's going to supply everything that we need. And it's a good life with him. So how can we help you today, man? Have you had this fresh start in life? If you haven't given your life to Jesus, uh, that's where you need to start. All of us are in different places in here. Some of us are just investigating faith. If you haven't uh, looked at scripture with anybody or talked about your personal relationship with God, if you haven't been baptized before, uh, that's where you need to start. You need to look into the scriptures. If you would like to start there, uh, indicate that you'd like a personal Bible study on that communication card. You've got a cardstock piece of paper in your bulletin if you want to pull those out. It's got space for you to uh, uh, respond. We're going to close out the lesson in that way. And I want to encourage you just to look over that and kind of see what you need. If you're outside of a relationship with God or you want to talk about a relationship with God, start with personal Bible study. If you are struggling in just in your surrender or your obedience and you need some prayer or some support, indicate that on there. If you need other help, we have a lot of different things that we offer that I'll let you look at. But I want you to know, especially if you're visiting and just kind of getting to know the crossings, you're in a safe place. There's nothing, if you're struggling today, that you are struggling with that someone else in this room has not struggled with. There's nothing you're facing, I guarantee you, that someone else in here hasn't in some way faced and probably overcome with the help of Jesus. Without knowing situations, we can't, can't say that broadly, but probably there's a lot of story in this room. And there's a lot of redemption that's taken place in this room. And there's a lot of beautiful stuff that God has done in the lives of those people in this room. Uh, and so we would like to share that with you. Look over that card and just let us know how we can help you. Uh, I'm going to close with the prayer. And then after my prayer, uh, the worship team's going to come up and sing a song. And during that first song, we're going to pass some baskets uh, where you can drop your card and contributions in there. Um, if you're a guest, we, we really aren't here asking for contributions from you. Churches sometimes have a reputation for being all about money. We don't want your money, okay? And that's not uh, because it, we're better than you or anything. It's because we really just want to help you today. We want to give to you today. And so let us give to you just by filling out that card. Let me pray, and then uh, we'll get going. God, thank you for today. Thank you for this group of people. Uh, I pray as we close today that we'll take your word and apply it to our lives. We love you. Thank you so much for being kind and graceful to us, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.